Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together here in nature using, Lord, the canopy of this forest, um, Lord, as, our, as a cathedral today, just asking, Father God, for your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that Eric Walsh would not be seen or heard, but Father God, instead, I ask that you would show up in this place and that you would lead our discussions is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our talk is called Rumbles in the Mind, Rumbles in the Mind, and it really is focusing in on addiction, but I wanted to talk about a few other things that also influence the way that the mind works um, in a spiritual sense. Um, so the first text, or our key text actually for all of our talks today come from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. and. It reads, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I actually believe that Satan has to work to actively blind, distract, distort the gospel in order for it to not have its full effect. And what I mean by that is, if people come in contact with the gospel, the scripture says the word of God cannot go out and come back void. So the, Satan knows this. So he works tirelessly to set up a system um, where the gospel can be, can be around and people don't pay attention to it. Where the gospel is around but people don't respond to it. And he, one of the ways that the devil can do this is through idolatry. That's why idolatry is so forbidden in Scripture. Once you start to make allegiance to any other god, by default, it comes into juxtaposition with your allegiance to the god of the universe. And that's what Jesus even makes very clear. You, cannot, you can't serve two masters. And so Jesus makes that very clear. So what does the devil do? He works very hard to set up other gods. And he's so sophisticated nowadays that he doesn't do it like he did in that old days with Ashtaroth and, and Moloch and all these crazy gods. Well, he does do that as well still, but he also is much more sophisticated. And I believe one of the greatest efforts he uses has gone all the way back to ancient Egypt and that the devil actually uses people and personalities as gods. So that you begin to worship, uh, you become a fan of someone. And, 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 and I think there's no accident that American Idol is called American Idol. I don't think there's an, an accident that a show like Dancing with the Stars is called Dancing with the Stars. The scripture says that the dragon's tail drew a third part of the stars and cast them to earth. I think there's a reason that they call the show Dancing with the Stars. What they're trying to do is get you so caught up in the personality and lives of these famous people that literally they become a blinding force on your mind. And you know that because there are people who follow TMZ, People Magazine. They are religiously attached. Kate and somebody makes eight or something. What the couple just got a divorce. Um, I can't remember the guy's name for some reason. I've never seen this show. John and Kate make a plus eight or something like that. And they're going through a divorce. And it's like the biggest talk. I mean, even on the Christian radio, quote unquote, Christian radio station in Southern California, that's what they're talking about. It's amazing how much we really, once somebody get elevated into the public eye, how much we as a society shift to wanting to follow that individual. It's amazing. And that is one of the ways that I think the devil in these last days actually has resurrected idolatry. 
And I mean, and it really, it almost work, it works like a charm um, in a very spiritual sense for Satan. So let's go to our, our Bible story here. Um, this is, I suppose it's Salome before Herod. Um, the title got cut off in the back there. And, I, and it just says, the effects of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is one of the first examples where, one of the great biblical examples where a few things came together for, with disastrous consequences for the people of God. This is one of the um, classic um, renditions of that uh, Bible story. Um, and you can see her there dancing and, and the mother wanting the, uh, John the Baptist's head. Um, and it says here, Matthew 14 and verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought on a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Powerful Bible story. We often, you know, kind of run through this one into the other stories in the, New, in the New Testament. But really, there's a lot being said here. One, Herod knew that he was already doing wrong because he, had, he, he was with his brother's wife. That's how this whole thing starts. And John the Baptist was the only preacher bold enough to call sin, sin. And he did. And because of that, he was imprisoned. That's what got him in jail in the first place. But when the, the wife wanted John the Baptist dead, it wasn't enough that he was contained. As long as he was alive, he was a voice against her marriage and against her lifestyle, really. So she determined in her mind that she was going to find a way to have this man put down. That was her whole goal after that. And unfortunately, what she did was she actually took her own daughter and had her daughter to dance before Herod. In the process of this seductive dance, and you can almost hear the ancient music playing, and, and the wine is flowing in the, in the, in the, in the uh, I say the dance hall, but in the king's hall. Um, and through all of that, once he gets a little bit tipsy, or maybe a lot tipsy, I don't know, um, and once he's seduced by his now stepdaughter, basically, he is willing to make an oath to give her anything up to this large percent, half of his kingdom, a third of his kingdom. He's willing to give away his kingdom because of how, you know, excited he is by this young girl. The mother, of course, jumps right back in and says, look, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, I can't imagine this poor girl thought when she has to go and ask for someone's head on a platter. I don't think that was her intention from the beginning, but of course she does what her mother says, and you know the rest of the story. His head is cut off, brought on a charger. And that's the, the end of John the Baptist, um, at least in the Bible. Now, Jesus speaks very highly of John the Baptist afterwards. And one of the points of contention Jesus actually has to deal with is the fact that his disciples wonder, murmur behind him, why didn't he go and save John? If he's the Messiah, because remember, they had a twisted view of who he was. If he's the Messiah, why didn't he go and save John if he's going to build this new kingdom? Well, I really want to focus on the fact that in this story, you have the mix of alcohol, which is a drug, music, and visual entertainment combined with sexual seduction. In this one story, you have it. And Herod, being theoretically a Jew, knew better than what he was doing. 
and you see the dire consequences. And the Bible, the Bible says if he hadn't given that oath in front of his friends, he actually would have probably backed out. But a public oath given by a king, he couldn't, she set him up so he couldn't back out. So here's another, uh, one of the ancient pictures of, of the, from the story with um, his head being actually brought to Herodias. Um, so Herod's wife used music, visual seduction, and alcohol to destroy God's prophet. Here's key. In the same way as we face the end time um, beast, the beast and the false prophet will seek to destroy the people of God with these three things. The same method will be applied to destroy people in the last days. It was an effective, destructive tool to silence the, one of the greatest prophetic voices of all times, one of the boldest voices of all times. One of the most, I mean, he lived a very clean, very different life than everybody else. Um, and yet, this is how he met his end, because Herod was deceived this way. And we have to be careful as Christians that we don't get deceived by the same things and literally cut off the head of the prophet. Because we can do the same thing. Because the devil, once you start to follow the world and its entertainment and its, and its delicacies, one of the things that the devil is going to do is he's going to say, you know what? The first place he starts almost with our people is Ellen White. I find it funny. People, be, I mean, and they throw Ellen White under the bus for no good reason at all. And you know why? The same reason Herod got, I mean, Herod's Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. He, Sin was being called out. And when sin is being called out, you want to silence the voice of the person calling out the sin. The war against Ellen White is, is the exact same war that was fought against John the Baptist. And I can imagine there were many in the Jewish leadership that considered John the Baptist a false prophet. The many of them that called him all kinds of names and did all kinds of things to him and were very happy that he was killed uh, this way. And I can tell you that the same war against our, our modern-day prophet, the same war is being fought over the same issue. People do not want sin called out. I was on a plane next to a, uh, one of the popular worship leaders in the country. He works with one of the huge uh, evangelical churches in Atlanta, and he flies here twice a month to do a program in Orange County. Oh, I was, we were flying in the Santa Ana airport, um, and he... Uh, Actually, he's recorded with people like Israel um, and New Breed, and I mean, he's a really big person. I mean, you know, he's he's a major. He's even written some of the songs that maybe even some of us know that, that have been sung. And um, his whole our whole discussion on the plane was he believes that the church focuses too much on sin. It was amazing. He said, actually, he said his, his thing was really once you accept God, you can't be lost. I said, do you believe once saved, always saved? And he backed up a little bit, but that's really what he believed. He believed once you're saved, you're always saved. So I said, well, the question then becomes, can a, choose, can a saved man choose to be lost? Mm -hmm. When you become saved, do you, do you forfeit your choice? And that stumped him. Because I said, because love is the great monkey wrench of the universe. Choice is the great monkey wrench of the universe with love. In other words, if God didn't require or didn't d d desire love, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have given us choice. Because he, the one thing God, one of the things God cannot do, he cannot lie, he also cannot force you to love him. It's not love unless you choose it. So why would he, you accept Jesus in one minute and then lose choice? Because once you lose choice, you can't really love God. 
But sin, I'm telling you, the war over what is sin, and, and I have a whole thing I do on, um, on Joel Osteen and a lot of different popular preachers, and I have the whole transcript from uh, CNN when Joel Osteen is on with Larry King Live, on Larry King Live, and um, he, this whole thing that Joel Osteen goes into about he doesn't use the word sinner. You know, I mean, he, and, he, and he sticks to it. You know, he, never, he doesn't really believe in commandments. He doesn't call out bad lifestyles because that isn't his brand of Christianity. My problem with that is if there's no sin or if there's no reason to deal with sin, then did Jesus even need to come in the first place? If sin isn't really a problem, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? He, would have, he could have stayed in heaven. I mean, if sin isn't that bad of a thing. But this, is, this issue is, is, is really the central point of why, uh, where the church is going. The evangelical, the Sunday churches are really going fast in that direction, are really walking away from standards and any kind of boundaries into, uh, you know, kind of grace turned into disgrace. And that's really what we're starting to see. The question I have at the, at the end of this slide says, why is, it that, uh, why is it that they took his head? And I think, honestly, it was because he had the mind of Christ Jesus. I think, honestly, Herodias realized that she, if, if, if they tried to kill him any other way, as long as his head was attached to his body, he would still condemn her sin and call them to repentance. But she understood that really the center point, what was really given over to God completely in John the Baptist was his mind, was completely given over. And she wanted that disconnected, and she got it. So let's back up for a second. We'll come back to John the Baptist later on um, in that story and talk a little bit about the temple. The temple that was in existence at the time was the second temple that was built by Nehemiah and Ezra um, after the, 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 um, the, well, the nation of Judah at that time had been taken into captivity. It's a smaller temple. It wasn't as fancy as Solomon's temple, but I, ironically, it's the temple that Jesus actually it's the temple Jesus used. So it was, in, in a sense, more holy than any other temple because this is the one Jesus actually walked in until he walked out and basically said, I leave your, your house unto you desolate, at which point the temple shifted. The temple ceased to be a building and became a body. Not just our, each of our singular bodies, the temple actually becomes the collective body of Christ. The church itself is the temple. He wants to inhabit us. And so Paul makes it very clear when he says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So clearly something shifts. That temple is destroyed and has never been rebuilt. In fact, that is the big argument in Israel. Uh, the Temple Mount, where, and I've been to Israel, where the, the mosque sits, which is the second most holy place in all of Islam, you would have to tear that mosque down, technically, to actually rebuild the temple where it's supposed to go. The problem with that is if you touch that mosque, it literally would incite the Third World War. So you can't really touch it. Even Israel, as tough as they are, they, cannot, they can't touch that mosque. So they've just, that's why they have a wailing wall. They have one wall left, which actually isn't from the second temple either. It's actually from the, the, uh, the, the temple that the Ottomans actually built up many centuries later. And they go to that wall, stick their prayers in the crevices, and they, you know, they cry and pray and wail for the loss of the temple, even to this day. The rabbis still wail the loss of this temple. But they didn't understand that once Jesus came to earth, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. 
Why would the first two temples were built so that he would have a tabernacle, so that he could dwell with us? Once Jesus came, it changed the game. God actually was with us. There was no more need for a physical structure in which to house God. Instead, Jesus wanted to um, really, I want to say, inspire and ignite the people to become the place where, the, where God dwelled. And so, before he leaves earth, Jesus does what? He gives the comforter. Now the Holy Spirit can actually fill all of us simultaneously all over the world. And Jesus now has a living, breathing, active, dynamic temple. It's a powerful thing. Far greater than having a temple with the best gold and marble and all the other stuff that was in there. But so I first heard Doug Batchelor talk about um, the body as the temple. And I was, as a physician, I was so impressed. I actually went and did research. And he, had, he mentioned just a few quick things in one of his talks. And I was fascinated. I know there are many other people that do this. But so I went and looked at the, the, the sanctuary and I started to look at how does the sanctuary actually relate to the body? And can you make true, um, you know, analogies with the body and with the, with the temple? And so, and really, I'm using the sanctuary here that Moses used in these, in these illustrations. But I, I looked at it and I saw that the stomach or the mitochondria, because I can actually break this down to a cellular level. So each of us really becomes like a cell in the body as individuals. And then we together make up like organs. And then we work together to actually have a functioning, living church body. I mean, that's a little more detail, but then Paul kind of gives it feet and hands. But I honestly believe each one of us singularly like a cell functions as an individual temple. So we'd like the mitochondria as the powerhouse of a cell. Um, we can actually make the correlation all the way down. But your stomach is where things are digested, and that's the brazen altar. The immune system and circulatory system are looking at it as, as the brazen laver. So you wash before you go into the holy place. Um, the tabernacle of the mind. So the, in the holy place, you actually are dealing with the mind, the conscience, the thinking. Um, and so the table of showbread I put, I, 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 was, I did the research, I looked at it as the heirs and hearing. Because what, what is showbread? It's bread. Well, the bread is also the word. It's the, it's the word of God. It's the life. So you want to hear God's word. It's how we receive the bread of life. Um, Golden altar of incense is like speech and language. It's uh, the speech and language centers in the brain or the tongue. The coals of fire, even at Pentecost, when, um, when, when the Holy Spirit fell, it was like a, a what was it? Like a tongue, like a cloven tongue of fire that came down. And that incense, when, that, when it goes up, the Bible says that God actually pays attention to our prayers, like incense, sweet incense going up. Um, the golden candlesticks I put his eyes and vision because it represents the light of Christ. And, of course, our eyes are where the light comes in. And our eyes are the most sophisticated um, neural part of our bodies. There were many, many, many neural connections going all the way to the back of your head, to your occipital lobe of your brain. Um, and then I put the Ten Commandments. Now, this is where I like it. So you go into the most holy place, as you can see in the picture here. When you go into the most holy place, that actually is the frontal cortex of the brain. This is the reasoning and the thought center of the brain. So the Ten Commandments are like your conscience. Your conscience cannot make you do right, but your conscience lets you know what is right. You then have to act on your conscience because your conscience office will tell you, you know, you really ought not do what you're going to do or say what you're going to say and you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right? But it's the fact that you have a conscience is what tells you that it was wrong in the first place. And that's what the Ten Commandments are for. The Ten Commandments can't save us. 
But without the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't know we need Jesus. They really are the mirror, like the conscience the mirror um, for us to do right. Aaron's budding rod and pot of manna wind up in the Ark of the Covenant. I talk about that as memory. The fact that we have to store information in our brain and the budding rod and the pot of manna were placed there to remind the children of Israel of previous blessing and how God had made choices. Also, I think it also represents faith. Faith is an intellectual process, as we'll get into a little later on. It's spiritual, but there is a, an intellectual side of it. Faith can be exercised, just like you can develop better memory by exercising your memory, and we'll talk about when we talk about television. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is the frontal lobe, like I was saying, I should have put that up top. But then I think that there's the one last piece, and that is in the most holy place, the Shekinah, glo the Shekinah glory of God was to fall. And you, if you remember, if the priest wasn't right, he, they put a rope around his foot when he'd go in there. If he wasn't right when he went in there on the, one, on the Day of Atonement, if he died in there, they had to pull him out. They couldn't go in there. The part of our minds that really translates to being the Shekinah glory is our character. And Ellen White says the only thing we really take with us to heaven is our character. Our bodies will be made new. We'll be recognizable. But we are looking to develop character all of our lives. That's the point. It's to develop our characters so that we have the character of Christ. That really is the whole point of, of, of justification and, and really sanctification, trying to get us to develop that character, be more and more like Christ Jesus in character. Um, and that is the Shekinah glory that fell on the most holy place. So understanding all of that and that your brain is like the sanctuary, why attack the temple? Why would you attack the temple if you're the enemy? Well, if you're the enemy and you can weaken, and if he can weaken your body and destroy your mind, he actually can put your salvation in jeopardy. This is why the health message is so important, because the health message helps you have a healthier mind, and the healthier your mind, the better your chances at, have, at reaching to salvation. In other words, making the choice. And I want to show you the text that backs this up. And this is the destruction of the second temple here, and as um, Titus is carrying off the goods out of the temple. Um, so if the mind is the most holy place, Isaiah 1 and verse 18 puts it this way. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come and let us what? Reason. Salvation is an intellectual process. So this is why the Bible says over and over and over again, be sober, be sober, be sober, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, like a Roman lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If the devil can get you to not be sober, you will not be able to make right decisions. If you've ever been around somebody who's drunk, you understand that they do things that when they're sober, they would never do. They say things that they would never do. And the devil knows from a spiritual standpoint, he needs to damage your sobriety. That's his whole point, his whole mission, because then you won't make right choices. And at the end of the day, choice and love are linked, and that's what he's trying to really mess with. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 says, bring every thought into captivity. Bring every thought into captivity. And we'll show that whole text a little later on. But this is the power of the mind. That we have the ability through faith in Christ Jesus, the Bible says it like this, it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. So when you choose to love God, something powerful happens. He sent the love of Christ comes back on you and it becomes the force that helps you to make right decisions. You get that? Our righteousness is as filthy rags and righteousness is by faith. That's why the Bible says, and Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The belief part is our peace. 
And um, uh, one, of, one, um, one of the my favorite authors uh, used to be the pastor of the Azure Hills Church in Loma Linda, uh, Morris Venden, wrote a book. And one of the things he, one of the books he wrote that I really enjoyed was where he wrote it, and he said, "We should fight the fight of faith and not the fight of works." In other words, if we just grit our teeth and say, "Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be vegan," and you grit your teeth and say, "I'm going to be live healthy, I'm going to be a vegan." You might grit your teeth and do real good, but you may not be very happy doing it, and it may be a, strong, a struggle for you. But if you change your attitude towards changing your behavior and say, look, I'm going to just serve God. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to study more. I'm going to draw closer to him, and I'm going to give to him the things that I want to give up and let God take them from me. And all of a sudden, the transformation is an easier transformation. And instead of it being like a painful process, if we draw closer to Christ, the Bible says his love will constrain us. That's a promise. And God can't lie. But a lot of times what we're trying to do is actually constrain ourselves. And we wrestle for decades trying to constrain ourselves and have this miserable Christian experience when in fact what we want to do is turn our, repent, turn our sins over to, to God, confess our faults one to another, and actually have the love of Christ draw us in. That's a, an important uh, a, a part of all of this actually is having Jesus do a lot of the work for you um, and you just have put your trust and your faith in him. So it says, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And it says, just thinking on evil creates pathways um, in the brain. Bountains are formed that make doing evil, um, doing evil uh, more easy, doing the evil thought more easily, more easy. And bountains we'll get to in a little while, but these are the acetylcholine um, packages that your brain puts at the end of neurons so that when you've done something, it's easier to do it the second time. And that's how habits are formed. And we'll talk about this later on. Ellen White amazingly actually describes this perfectly in talking about these lines that are made into the brain. And we'll, I'll show the quote this afternoon. Um, and so Paul understood that the brain, the mind had to be protected. So what does he describe when he talks about putting on the whole armor of God? Ephesians 6, 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you notice that the helmet is the is the actually the helmet of salvation and it is made to protect the frontal cortex uh, of the brain which the frontal cortex is right behind your fore, your forehead bone here your frontal lobe frontal bone your frontal lobe is right behind it and so the helmet was made to protect that and helmets work really well we had a case I'm on a, in Orange County I sit on the child death review team we had a case recently where um, a kid was on a skateboard and he wasn't wearing a helmet and the skateboard just went out from under him like it probably had done a thousand times, but he didn't, he, nothing caught him and his head was the first thing that hit the ground and he didn't have a helmet on and he died instantly. Helmets work. I mean, there's something about wearing a helmet even in the spiritual realm so that if you fall, you don't, the helmet is able to absorb um, some of that blow. And that's the, the helmet of salvation, that relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is to protect the frontal lobe of your brain. Ellen White says this, it is the mind that worships God and allies us to heavenly beings. All the physical organs are the servants of the mind and the nerves are the messengers that transmit its orders to every part of the body, guiding the motions of the living machinery. Now, the reason that this is important is, I tell people all the time, the only reason you have a kidney is to purify the blood and, and, and filter out um, toxins and, and, and balance your electrolytes and, and, and get rid of excess fluid so that your brain doesn't get damaged. You have a liver that processes poisons so that your brain doesn't get damaged. You have a stomach so they can digest food so you can get nutrients so your brain can be fed. You have arms so that you can work to feed your body so your brain, everything about you feeds your brain. 
right? Because if you lost an arm, you'd still be you. A leg, a, even part of your liver, a kidney, a lung. You get my point? They'll never be able to do a brain transplant. Maybe part of a brain one day, but really would never be able to do a full brain transplant. Once they transplant your brain, you cease to be you. That your character is in your frontal lobe. So your whole body functions for your brain. That's the whole point. And a lot of times we forget that. We think the brain functions for the body. Um, so we're looking to be pleased, you know, through our stimulating our brain to relax our body or excite our body. But it's the flip opposite. Our bodies exist for our brains. Um, Ella White understood that very well. So once weakened, the mind is less critical. Uh, Satan gains a strong foothold through the media influences of our time. So I have a picture in the background there of the rapper 50 Cent, and I wish I had a bigger picture because this, this is a platinum and diamond studded large cross hanging from the gun. Um, and it, I, anytime I show that picture, I always remind young people of um, quotes from Roger Murnau, who's one of my favorite authors, and I read, a lot, all of his, read almost all of his books. And one of his books he talks about when he was still a demon worshiper, he says that the demon priest said that one of the things that they do is they make sure to have um, people who worship the devil wear crosses. It's because it's an insult against God that they wear the cross, one. But also, the devil views the cross as the place he gained his victory as well. So they want them to wear crosses like this, really fancy, pretty, ornate crosses. And when you look through Christian history, a lot, that's really what the crosses mainly look like. There aren't too many crosses that are like just two pieces of wood stick wrapped together. Most of the time, they're pretty fancy crosses people wear around their necks. But, you know, and I remind people, God didn't call us to, to wear a cross. He called us to, to bear a cross. Mm -hmm. And so Puffy and Madonna and all the rest of them, they actually wear these crosses to me after reading Roger Murnau, it's the sign of their allegiance to Satan. Mm -hmm. Not that they are somehow secret Christians, as some people would almost want to believe. Um, the other part of it is here, the breeding evil and the real impact of video games. There was a whole article in one of the um, science magazines on this, and they were talking about the impact, because at that time when this article came out, Columbine had happened, and they found out that actually the, they prepared to go in and um, do what they did by video game. They actually you know, practiced shooting people in the video game and then went in and did it. And they also got it from the Basketball Diaries, the movie. There was a scene in there where the guy goes into the classroom and pretends, you know, in his imagination, shoots everybody up um, and talks against God in the movie. Um, and you can get that on the DVD, um, um, Hollywood's War Against God. He describes that movie and how it might have really impacted what happened at Columbine. But the video games are part of it. Um, even the 9-11 attackers used um, simulation video games, actually, as part of the way that they practiced doing what they did. Now, I, I mean, I'm probably making a big jump there, but video games are interactive. So they actually have the brain participate in things that it would otherwise never do. I saw years ago when my cousin had um, maybe the first PlayStation, and they had um, a game called Mortal Kombat. And I don't know now, they're probably up to Mortal Kombat 40. I, I don't know what they're at now, but it was Mortal Kombat 1 or 2. Uh, and he, 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 there was a, he said, hey, come here, watch this. And they're fighting, and it's this really complicated, I don't know how you can do the controller to do all of that stuff. And he, the guy punches the other guy in the chest, reaches and grabs his heart, yanks it out while it's beating in a video game, and holds it up. And the beating heart is in his, ha, 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 ha. And my cousin's like, isn't that cool? 
And I'm like, dude, I mean, do you really, I mean, are you gonna try and reach into somebody's chest and pull their heart out? I mean, you know, but it was a part of a greater demise, actually, in my cousin, where, I mean, eventually he left, the, you know, he doesn't go to church, he, he's actually trying to be a rapper, he changed his name to Lord Raven or something. Um, but I don't, I don't believe those video games helped him. Even if I can't argue that they hurt him, I can't, I don't think they helped him. Let me put it that way. So it's interesting, though, because you model when you do this. You know what I mean? It's, it's a modeling activity, and people act out their fantasies. And what you're going to find, based on the literature and the evidence, is thinking things is, is, makes it easier to actually do them. So practicing them in a video game might also make it easier to do them. That's the way that the brain is actually designed to work. All right. So what, let's talk about music a little bit. Um, and so here's the brain, and you can see this is the temporal lobe here. Here's your frontal lobe here. Um, the primary motor cortex, the central sulcus, primary somatosensory cortex, the parietal lobe, occipital lobe. There won't be any tests, so don't worry about it. Um, but you see through your occipital lobe. But your temporal lobe actually sits where um, your hearing actually comes in. And it is very important for sensory input. Even visual uh, sensory input is processed somewhat in the temporal lobe. But music has the ability to bypass the frontal lobe and affect the lower portions of the brain. So it can bypass your reasoning center. Remember Isaiah 1 verse 18? Come now, let us reason together. Music can actually bypass that. It can short circuit that. Go around it. So the studies show that if you put an, a, a message to music, people are less likely to actually analyze what the message is coming in over the music. That's powerful because that has a lot to do with a lot of the modern praise songs. And I mean, I probably took that slide off. Maybe I'll add it for this afternoon. But there's, I have a, there's a song that they sing in some churches called Undignified Praise. And you listen to the lyrics of the song, you're like, why would you sing that you want to give God undignified praise? Yet whole churches will sing the song. That, in, in essence, is the power of music, though. What music does is it act, you will actually, you will take a message in about yourself that is counter to yourself, that you don't even want. And you'll just accept it. People sing, a good example is Earth, Wind, and Fire. When they ask Earth, Wind, and Fire about their song, Reasons, um, the lead singer, Philip Bailey, said he doesn't understand why people play the song Reasons at their weddings. He said Reasons is a song that basically is a curse on relationships. It's the reasons, the reasons that we're here, the reasons that we share. I can't remember the rest of it. But basically, he's given all the reasons why he's leaving this woman. And he's like, this is actually the first song people sing. And he said, he, of course, he's an Egyptologist and into the occult. So he's saying he doesn't understand why people would play that and curse their own wedding on the first day. <laughs> the guy who wrote the song says that. But because of the music, it's so soft and so smooth and so seductive, people are just like, oh, the reasons. It must be the reasons that they love each other, when actually it's the opposite. But you don't analyze the lyrics the same way if the music is right. That's the powerful thing about music. And the reason why you have to watch music, you have to be careful what music you listen to and what it's actually saying, because if you don't, you, the devil can basically implant any message in your brain. I mean, you want to know why it's so easy for young urban kids to kill today, even more easy than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Look at the music. I mean, you know, there was a time in the streets of Chicago they were singing, you know, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Now it's, you know, it's, it's shoot, kill, maim, destroy. And that's really the music. And it actually, at some point, begins to affect the society. 
The right temporal lobe is a key brain site for processing music. There's increased activity there when focusing on harmony. So you focus on harmony, that the right temporal lobe actually becomes more active. Um, other studies show that the temporal lobe in concert with the frontal lobe are used to identify certain chords. So your brain, your frontal lobe gets involved, but again, it is distracted to the music itself and the message, the words can slip by. The other thing with music that I don't, I don't know if I have on this next slide, let me see. Um, no, I don't. But the other thing with music is it actually can set mood. People say the music doesn't matter. The music itself doesn't matter. That's a lie. A good example of that I heard on one of the, one of the Adventist uh, presenters, I think it was from South Africa, and he, he made a real good point. He said, if you, t if you go out on a date, do you play army drum music? Because army drum music sets a certain mood. You want to march? <laughs> you want to stand straight up? I, I'm not sure. Um, but if you really want to set a mood, you'd play softer music. And, he, and that's a good point. It's the, music can set a mood. And actually, the best proof of that is mute movies. Turn off the sound and watch a scene, and you'd be amazed at how different you watch the scene. Scary movies are not, not scary without the music. They're stupid and ridiculous without the music. The music is the and you, uh, you're screaming before anything even happens. That's the power of music. And one of the best tests of it is, somebody who doesn't trust, believe you, so, okay, you ever watched a scary movie, turn off the sound and see if it's as scary as it is with the, movie on, with the music on. That's the power of music. It sets up an emotional stage. It reaches into the thalamus, deeper parts of the brain, emotion centers of the brain, and it actually stirs emotion. And that's why it's so hard to give up music. You know, my family's Jamaican, and you know, I grew up listening to a lot of reggae music. My uncles would play. We didn't like it when we were kids, but I, you know, eventually I like reggae music as well. One of the things I don't listen to, I don't listen to Bob Marley or reggae music. Because if I just listen to a little bit, I would go all the way back to the beginning in terms of desiring it again. So I basically just don't listen to it. Not even a little bit, because I understand that there's power in the music. And probably some of the most powerful music ever is that reggae music. The deep bass lines, the slow, seductive chants. It's very, very powerful music. Um, the people don't believe that music actually impacts you. They think music is neutral. All of the science proves different, actually. That's not true. So music significantly lowers the heart rate, calms and regulates the blood pressure, uh, and respiration rates um, of patients who have, ha who have undergone surgery. So they've done studies where they play soft classical music after surgery, and they've seen where it lowers the heart rate, calms and regulates the blood pressure, and even lowers the respiration rate. Um, in a 2007 a study in Germany found that music therapy helped improve motor skills in patients recovering from strokes. Is music neutral? can't be neutral. Music can actually help improve recovery from a stroke. If it can impact the brain on that kind of a powerful, basic anatomical level, it must also affect it a healthy brain. I mean, the, the, the idea that it's neutral doesn't make sense. Studies found that music therapy can boost the immune system, improve mental focus, help control pain, create a feeling of well-being, and greatly reduce anxiety of patients awaiting surgery. Pregnant women in one study who listened to pre-recorded CDs of soothing music for 30 minutes daily showed significant reduction in stress, anxiety, and depression. One of, the, one of my favorite Bible stories on music is in the Old Testament, and I should have a, I should have a slide on it, when David um, is in the presence of Saul. And the scripture says that Saul had this spirit from the Lord on him, and David is sent, he gets his harp, he plays his music, and the Bible says, the Bible says, he played the evil spirit out of Saul. 
So if you can play a spirit out of someone with music, could the reverse be true? Could you actually play a spirit into someone? Well, that's what rock and roll thinks. If you listen to the words of, people, of all the great famous rock stars from Mick Jagger and on, almost all of them, and one of the ones that pops in my head is by Chuck D from Public Enemy. He says, the, I know the rhythm, the rhyme, because the beat is designed so I can enter your mind. Luke, I mean, I have all of these on some of my other talks. Um, Luke Skywalker, who I know personally, actually gets his hair cut next to me sometimes when I'm in Miami. He has a line, he has a line in one of his songs where they say, I'm a disciple of Satan with work to do. The music actually becomes the way that the devil wants to bring spirits into people. And now you've got these strong, strong spiritual overtones in the music that just didn't really exist before. Madonna's come out as a, into this Kabbalah. When I was in Israel, they took us to Haifa, to a Kabbalah synagogue. It was one of the spookiest things I ever, 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 ever was involved with. Luckily, I don't think I realized how spooky it really was at the time. But you go into this dark place, and they talk about how the world was created by pulling all the matter back out of the middle, and they sent this thing into the middle, and how you can have all of this power through Kabbalah. It's really like Jewish witchcraft is really what it is. Um, and that's what Madonna and even Britney Spears, now some of them are promoting this stuff. Um, so the music, if you notice, I mean, and it start, the music actually starts to say and speak that. I mean, in rap, the Luciferian messages of people like Jay-Z, um, and all of a sudden, you got all these kids listening to the music, and they don't even realize, again, if, a, if an evil spirit can be played out of you, how good is Satan with music? He is brilliant with music. In fact, the way he's described in the scriptures, I don't have that in here because this isn't really a music talk, he was built with pipes and tablets, the scripture says. He is like a living, breathing, organic, well, I don't even know if you say organic, but whatever the material of heaven is, he's a living, breathing, musical instrument. He, that's literally what he is. He is fundamentally phenomenal at doing music. And a lot of the songs that we, you know, that, that they play in, 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 in popular music really have a lot to do with Satan trying to move society in a certain direction. And it has worked like a charm. If you look at the moral decay of the United States from the time rock and roll is introduced to today, I mean, the divorce rate, I mean, if you look at divorce rates, murder rates, something significant happened in that same time period. It isn't all music, but I, would have, I have to believe that music has drastically changed the world, and the devil, because of his skills, orchestrated it. Roger Manoa and others, Ellen White, talk about the devil and his minions coming together and having meetings on how to do these things, and obviously the devil would want to use music. It's, it's an incredible tool. Let me go back here. Um, so again, music bypasses the frontal lobe, therefore it does not undergo intellectual scrutiny as does written or straight verbal communication. If you want to get something into somebody's head, you play music. It brings them down, lowers their, 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 their intellectual defenses, and you can get messages into them. So if you really want to have a healthy mind, you really have to be careful what you listen to. And I think probably, you know, and one of the most important places for this, of course, is in corporate worship. Because everybody's different. And I would have to argue that there are people who, there are probably music forms that some can listen to that will ill affect some, that won't ill affect others. Maybe that's true. But I was, I was at one church, um, and I spoke, and I, and I was standing up outside shaking hands, and I heard the band, and this church had a true band, 
began to play an old funk song called She's a Bad Mama Jamma. See, some of y'all remember that song, some of you don't, that's okay. I mean, and I'm, and I'm standing out there singing, and I'm like, well, this is a liberal church, granted, but to play Parliament Funkadelic in church? And so, one of the young people's coming out, I'm like, dude, are they playing Parliament Funkadelic in church? He's like, oh, don't worry about it, Pastor. That's a gospel song now. They rewrote the words. <laughs> So when you come into a corporate body, someone who really had, was in the nightclubs with that music and did cocaine with that music and you know all kinds of other evils, the way that memory and music are tied together, you play that again and it will bring them immediately right back where they were. You know how powerful, music does that. You hear a song and you remember what you were doing the first time you heard the song or the second, it just brings you back. So now you're in, a, in the house of God worshiping, they turn on P-Funk and shh, we don't know where we're taking some of the people in church. This is one of the reasons why it's important that the music, we, we really have to make sure that the music is uplifting and ennobling so that we don't have that problem. Even though there are people in church who probably never heard it, maybe it doesn't ill affect them as much. I think it'll ill affect them some, but for some people, we have to safeguard people who don't even know it may not be good for them. And that's part of the problem because it, takes, it will take you back. Um, let's talk about TV for, uh, for a little while. Um, TV produces alpha wave, TV produces alpha wave effect on the brain. So television, so if music is able to bypass you, television is the opposite. Television, act, well it's not the opposite, television actually lulls you to sleep, it's probably the best way to say it. Television is a powerful tool of Satan. Um, I remember Sister Perch when I was a kid in Faith Church in, in Hartford, Connecticut. She gave us this story that always scared us so much. I don't know if, this, I, I could never verify the story obviously, about a missionary family and um, they were overseas and there was a terrible car accident and the two young children died in a car accident and because of where they were, the people practiced animistic religions and they actually, the, the voodoo priest or the spiritist leader invited the pastor to meet with him at the voodoo temple or whatever it was and the pastor went and as he walks into the, the, the place, into the temple, his dead children come running down the aisle to him. That's the story she tells. There's a point to the story, so I'm just going to tell the whole story. And so he hugs the kids, and before long, he'd always go back and visit just so that he could, you know, he missed his kids so much, obviously. This was the way he could sneak away from the Seventh-day Adventist congregation and actually visit with his children. He knew they weren't really his children, according to the story. But he went just because he missed his kids so much, which is why the state of the dead message is so important. Um, and he says, and by the end, though, they, the, the voodoo priest says, well, I want you to meet somebody. Takes him around the back to introduce him to somebody. And when he goes around the back, he says he sees this handsome, tall, strong-looking man. He knows it must be the devil and he, or, or, or a high-ranking demon or something. And he says to him, I, I have only one question. The pastor says, I have only one question for you. How do you plan to destroy God's people? And the devil or whoever the demon says to him, television. Television is the ultimate, our, our great last plan for the destruction of God's people because of the power that television has to influence your mind. And that's really what we're going to talk about and why we have to be careful of what we watch because we don't, we're, it's amazing where TV shows will take you. It's amazing where they'll take you. And one of the things that I, I, I you know, I, you know, Job says I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at the maid. And one of the covenants, uh, you know, personal thing I try to, uh, I, I made with God is not to get so caught up in any TV show ever again that I actually have to watch it. See, when I was little, there were shows that came on and like 
you know, every Thursday night you wanted to watch Cosby, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, well, you know, now I don't want to be where a point where there's a show I, I have to watch. I don't, there is none. So I really don't have to watch anything. I might watch the news, but that's, that would be basic about it. Once in a while, Discovery and all those history channels, great shows that seem like they teach you so much, often the ultimate point is to, is to promote evolution when you really watch the shows. And it's sad because you can learn so much about, you know, these different natural rock formations and things. And, but it always comes back to, well, this is, this is how it all evolved. You're like, ah, you know, they messed up the whole show. So television, there's not a whole lot on television anymore if you don't get, you know, real Christian broadcasting into your home. Um, the television produces a virtual hypnosis, and the left side of the brain decreases activity, which is the more, um, especially the left side of the frontal lobe is more analytic, critical side of the brain, but the right side speeds up in memory storage. So here's the irony. You, your, your defenses go down in that you go into this trans-like state when you watch television, but your memories pick up. So literally, you're being fed visual and auditory information that's going to be planted into your mind that you're not really going to process fully, but that is going to be stored long-term in your brain. That's a powerful tool to change behavior and have you act like the people on TV do. Um, TV can generate pseudo-emotions and experiences. I mean, you can watch TV. The people on TV aren't really dying or dead. You're watching a show. And people are crying. Think about that. It's not actually even happening, but people are so emotionally tied into this movie or this show and the person dying that people actually cry. That is a powerful stimulus on your brain if it can get you to do that. Um, and I want to make this point about movies. The movie theater is even more of a potent mind number. And I put the wrong, I spelled that wrong, I think. It looks like number. Um, but it's potent. The movie theater is actually a dark space with contro completely controlled sound. 30, 40 foot, I don't know how tall a movie screen is, images so that someone's face is gigantic on the screen. And because you really have no defense, in a, there's nowhere to look away in a movie theater. Think about that. At home, at least if you're watching TV, you can glance away and see something different. In a movie theater, there's nowhere else to look. It's just the screen. So the ability for the devil to really implant I've only been to the movie a few times in my life. I mean, I grew up at a time when Adventists didn't go to the movies. Um, and I remember going, with, with my, going to visit my godmother, and they took us to the movies to see, like, Purple Rain or something. And my mother wasn't there, but she, they took us. I'm telling you, I couldn't get the songs out of my head for, like, a week. I couldn't believe the influence. I mean, I was probably only 12 or 13, but I couldn't. That, it just bounced around in my head for, like, it, it just wouldn't come out of my head. And I couldn't understand, like, I, I can't get this junk out of my head. And it, to this day, I, I hate going, I don't like going to the movie. It bothers me. I, I, so I don't go. I, I think it's one of the worst places you can go because you don't know what they're going to show in the movie. You don't know what secret hidden message they can subliminally put in so many frames. You have no control of what's happening in a movie theater. Um, it's, to me, it's one of those places where you, it, it's like you're taking a chance walking in there, sitting out and watching a movie in my opinion, because you never know what they're going to do. And what they do, and a lot of these kids will have a whole thing on kids' movies, and in one of them, um, Shrek 2, there's a whole scene where Pinocchio, who's supposed to want to be a boy, they have this whole f funny scene where he actually is wearing woman's underwear. And it's like, this is for children? I mean, I have the whole dialogue on one of my popcorn. You got to do the whole, what they're talking about. It is, that's the, it's like a disgusting scene, actually. But here again, you go there thinking you're taking your child to see some 
kids entertainment, and actually, it, that's not child at all. That's adult entertainment, and your kid just got bathed with these messages that you don't know how that might affect your child. You know, some parents will protect their kids against all this other stuff and plop them down in front for, you know, for Spielberg or Pixar, people who don't know God, who, who worship probably the enemy, literally, and you trust your child to them. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Um, so here's Michael Jackson who just passed away at the age of 50 yesterday. Um, and you see him there doing a symbol of, of, um, of the devil, um, the horn symbol with his hands. And rock stars do this in order to, con to, to draw demonic power to themselves in concert. That's why they do this. It's, it's, and you can see now that many, many people do it. If you look at, you know, popular culture, a lot of people do this. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that they do in order to, it's a symbol to conjure up um, evil spirits. The Masonics, if you, in the Masonic manuals, they say that the symbols, all the gestures and symbols that they do represent spiritual forces. So they do certain hand gestures and symbols to, to, to draw spiritual power. And this is one of them. It's a demonic thing, and it's made so that you bring power to yourself. And it really goes back to the god Pan. If you remember Pan, he, was, he had hoofs. He's a, a Roman god. He had um, uh, hoofs. He had feet like a goat. And he kind of was like a half goat, but he was a half male, half female, half man, half goat. And he walked around playing a flute. And so the god of this kind of evil music, is that's the symbol, his hand symbol. So they throw that symbol up to conjure up demons and to gain power to perform better. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson now, Marvin Gaye, and so many other popular, famous, overwhelming public figures die early of drug overdoses. Keith, um, Heath Ledger, all these people, it's, it's a, there's a strong pattern. You start playing with the devil, eventually he pulls the rug out from under you. He pulls the covers off and he pulls the rug out from under you. He gets you into sin, like you know, alleged child molestation in this case pulls the covers off you, ruins your reputation, and takes you from this pinnacle of super complete world domination stardom like Michael Jackson had after he made Thriller, and makes him come all, I mean, just has this, this terrible decline all the way down into, you know, you know, basically what may have been a suicide attempt for all we know. But that's the way the devil works on people. He promises them a lot up front, and ask for a whole lot more on the backside. And he destroys these lives. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation says American children and adolescents spend 22 to 28 hours per week viewing television more than any other activity except sleeping. By the age of 70, they will have spent seven to 10 years of their lives watching TV. That's seven, 10 years continual. Like if you turn on the TV today, and stop and turn it off 10 years from now and watch it 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's the equivalent amount of time spent watching television. Many children don't do good in school for the singular reason that they watch too much television. Many, many children. In fact, if you look at who, if you look at by ethnic groups, how much time is spent watching television, it will predict how well they do in school. And there's even a study that showed that if you have the child watch television before they go to school, the hypnotic effect, the mind, you know, the way it turns off the mind, that effect actually lingers. So when they go to school, they can't learn. And it reproduces ADHD-type symptoms in the child. 
but they can't focus. And I think a lot of what we're diagnosed as ADD and ADHD is a combination of the child's diet and television and video games. They're overstimulated so much, you take them down, sit them in a classroom, the teacher doesn't blink, you know, doesn't light up, doesn't, there's no whistles that come out of her head. I mean, there's nothing like that. It's just a teacher standing there with a piece of chalk and a board a lot of times and some artwork on the wall and that's it. And the child is used to every, in television, every 10 to 15 seconds they change the frame because they want to keep you totally connected. They also know that the best time to, for you to follow something is 20-something minutes. So sitcoms are just longer than that. Everything about it is completely precisely set up so that you can you, you kind of get drawn deeper and deeper in and it lulls you to sleep. That's why you can watch television and hours go by and you don't even realize it. And I say this all the time at churches, you know, you go see people go, same church members will go and see a movie that's two hours plus three hours long, won't go to the bathroom, won't move, won't even wiggle, they'll hold it to go to the bathroom. <laughs> because they don't want to miss a scene out of the movie, you come to church and you go a minute over 12 o'clock and folk, bam, they're out of there. <laughs> it's a funny irony. You'd honestly prefer to spend time with the media of the world than you would in congregational worship with God, for God. And that's a serious thing because I think everyone would agree people could easily sit and watch TV for hours on end. But the ability to sit still is, I think, honestly, is thwarted by television, uh, as you'll see. Um, so average daily allotments of household and individual television viewing increased from the previous year to reach all-time highs during the 2005-2006 season. I don't know if you noticed, but even though people think that the internet um, is going to reduce, is reducing the number of time, the amount of time people spend watching television, the opposite is true. People are watching more and more and more television. In fact, the internet is not how a lot of people watch television. They can kind of program when they want to watch it. Um, and this is what, um, from Reuters, it says, these results demonstrate that television still holds its position as the most popular entertainment platform, said Patricia McDuna of Nielsen Media Research. At this point, consumption of emerging forms of entertainment, including internet, television, and video on personal devices, seems not to be making an impact on traditional television viewing. That'll change. Those things will get more popular, but I don't think it makes a difference. At the end of the day, people are still watching video images on a screen. The total average time per household in 2005-2006 was eight hours and 14 minutes a day, on average, spent watching television in the United States. That is a full-time job. Yeah. You could make a lot of money during that time. So here's uh, Jamie Raskin from the American University, uh, an American University law professor, 2004 Democracy Now! radio program. He says, everybody's got values. The thing that frightens me is, that, is the way that an eroding public school system and television on all over the place is leading to a steady dumbing down of the American public and a corrosion of basic critical thinking in the population. That is a powerful quote from someone who probably is not a Christian. Democracy Now! is a very liberal, left-wing radio program. I have, I have that program in my radio on my car. I have um, some of the right-wing talk shows in my car program. And sometimes when I'm driving, I bounce around and listen to what the people on the extremes are saying. And that's not a mid... That's a pretty left-wing show. So this guy doesn't believe in God saying this, probably. I mean, I don't know him, but that's, most of the people on that show are not Christians. Um, but look at what he's saying. He's saying that the public school system and television frighten him. 
someone who's probably not a Christian, guarantee, I mean, that show does not have Christians on it, because he thinks the American people are being so dumbed down. And here's why that's important. The brain is important because, again, choice is important. And America is a democracy, at least we're supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. How well does a democracy work if the people can't think critically? A democracy doesn't actually work at all. In fact, if you can use media to just dupe people, do you even have a democracy? You don't actually have one. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind as Seventh-day Adventist Christians because we get so caught up in politics, I'm not sure we realize how similar the two sides really are, number one. Um, you know, Barack Obama took over from George Bush, and I worked with the Bush administration, I work with the Obama administration now on HIV and AIDS in the White House. So I, you know, I go to Washington, D.C. to meetings, and I, I was with the last administration, I'm with this one. Um, they're not that different. I mean, there's some things that are like different, but they're, you know, in an obvious sense. But in fact, the same banking establishment is running the financial sectors for Barack Obama that ran them for George Bush. They didn't change anything. It's the exact same people, pretty much, or from the ex and from the exact same corporations. Because we think, well, there's a two-party system, they're so different. They're different on issues that they can be different on to, to kind of manipulate the people. But when it really matters, and money really matters, war really matters, I don't see much difference when it comes to money and war. Think about it. You, I mean, you would think, well, the Democrats are going to come in power, we'll just come out, we'll stop the war. We'll just leave Iraq, come out of Afghanistan. Did that happen? No. Because there are bigger powers at work in the United States. I'm getting off my subject. But unless you can think critically, you won't analyze the political spec, the situation in the United States and realize the devil will move back and forth between the two parties to move America where he wants it. And he's doing a foul, uh, uh, really a, 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 an incredible job of that, to where now you've got the church looking like the villain. He's done a great job of doing that. And when I say church, I mean the church in general. And also this idea of, of, this, of the liberal Christian. So you, you move to where now you can be a Christian and believe in gay marriage. You, you can be a Christian. I mean, there's a powerful move afoot. And I'm telling you, at some point they're going to want unity for real. And there's only going to be one place they're going to turn for that unity. Sunday. It's, it's, a, it's like a direct path that you can see lining up where everybody's trying to be spiritual, the left and the right. The only thing they're going to be able to seem to publicly agree on is that, okay, let's have at least a day of worship where we can all come together and, and get along. Which, can you see the Republicans fighting against that? No. I don't see the Democrats fighting against it. And that is one of the things that I think they're moving towards. But if you have a country where people don't think critically, they won't see any of this stuff coming. None of it. And that's the big thing facing the American people. And even more importantly, it's also, I have a sermon I do called The Dumbing Down of the Remnant. It's also happening for the Seventh-day Adventist Remnant Church, where people just accept what they're told. They don't study for themselves. They just believe what there's being preached in the pulpit. You know, if the guy goes up front and says Ellen White isn't a good person, they just believe it. They don't go back and do the research. They don't study things. I was in, I, you know, I used to run, be the medical director of urgent care at Loma Linda, and one of the nurses came into me one week with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a handout from Sabbath school at the university church at Loma Linda, and it was a thing saying Ellen White was a racist. 
And she said, have you seen this? Have you heard this? And she threw, throws this thing down in front of me like, Ellen White's a racist. I didn't know this. It's a white nurse. And she, I'm like, Who, where did you get this? Who's telling And she gave me the whole story. And I said, have you ever read a book called Southern Works? She's not a racist. She, I mean, there's nothing about her. In fact, she was more progressive than even Booker T. Washington and many of the black leaders of the day. She was far advanced. She established one of the best, her son came down the Mississippi River and she helped establish one of the best black schools in the country to this day, Oakwood University. If she was a racist, why would she do that? That wouldn't make any sense. But again, people don't think critically. They just accept what people tell them. You give them a handout and it must be true, it's on a, it's on a handout. And part of that comes from being a part of this Fox News, MSNBC culture, where you kind of listen to what you want to hear. And they tell you what you want to know, and then you believe whatever they tell you. All right, just a couple more of these, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a break. Um, so here's the frontal cortex. Um, a Snoop Dogg down there smoking, who actually visited Loma Linda while I was working there, and I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe... They actually had him visit as like an official, <laughs> I mean, I'd say they got in trouble for saying this at Loma Linda already. Um, so the frontal cortex is how the pleasure pathways in the brain work. Um, and really, we, God designed us so that things that we need to do produce some form of a feeling of, of pleasure in the brain. So when you chew and eat food, it releases a little bit of dopamine in your brain. Eating is pleasurable. Well, it should be because if it was horrible thing to eat, you'd never do it you'd probably not live very long. Um, same with drinking water. Drinking water, every time you drink water, there's a rush of dopamine that is produced. So when we actually have people coming off of nicotine, one of the things we tell them is drink lots and lots and lots and lots of water because it, their nicotine systems have been uh, manipulated. Um, sexual activity, obviously, is the most dopamine that can be produced naturally. So, so it can be, and this is why pornography and some of these other things are, can become so incredibly addictive. But also high-risk behavior, gambling, which you, where you can't control things, gives these adrenaline rushes, and they can also become pretty addictive. So there's a pleasure pathway in your brain that connects to dopamine. I'll show you a picture of that in a second. But some of the other chemicals, dopamine, adre adrenaline, serotonin, and GABA. Now, dopamine is the pleasure chemical in the brain. Adrenaline is the energy chemical, kind of lifts you up, charges you, helps you focus. Serotonin makes you think, I've got it. I've satisfied. I have what I need. Um, GABA is, is the one that actually inhibits you. It, it helps you to behave in a more civil, uh, normal manner. That's the role of GABA. So the devil uses drugs to possess. There's a reason that alcohol is often called spirits. There's an a demonic influence that can come upon you when your guard is let down. And the guard is let down because alcohol and marijuana same serve, do one thing in common, and that is they remove, destroy, deplete, um, disinhibit the effects of GABA. So that when you're drunk or high on marijuana or alcohol, one of the things that happen is you are disinhibited in general. In other words, you'd say things you otherwise wouldn't say, do things you otherwise wouldn't do. The prisons are full of people who committed crimes just after alcohol and or marijuana. And knowing some people who have committed some pretty serious crimes, one of the things they say is, in order to get the courage to go and do the crime, they smoke weed first. They smoke up, drink something, and then go and shoot or do whatever they're gonna do because this allows their normal conscience. It actually turns off some of their conscience. And they'll behave in a way that otherwise they wouldn't. 
And that's part of being intoxicated. Not just the pleasure from dopamine, but the blocking of GABA, which is one of the ways that your conscience actually works. I honestly believe, just like I was saying earlier that the frontal lobe is the most holy place, I honestly believe it is also how the Holy Spirit, through these chemicals, the Holy Spirit actually interacts with the mind. And can actually, the love of Christ literally can actually constrain us through the release of chemicals like GABA. But it doesn't work if you're smoking and drinking stuff that knocks GABA out. A healthy brain will have an adequate amount of GABA in balance so that when you are tempted to do something, there's a, actually a neurochemical mechanism to help you not do it. But these things are what the devil is trying so hard to knock out in all of the brains across the country. And here is the um, addiction pathway itself. And you see the guy smokes the nicotine here. It goes in, and once it comes in, the transmitting nerve cell sends the signal down. Here's the nerve endings here, and it goes into the receiver cell and goes on. At the synaptic junction here, dopamine comes, and it sends, it, sends dopamine across. The more deep dopamine that goes across, the more pleasurable the effect of the chemical has on the brain. So there are some chemicals that actually block the reuptake of the dopamine so that it stays in the space longer. So for example, serotonin is the chemical that makes you feel satisfied. So how do they treat anxiety now? They give you serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, Zoloft, Prozac, chemicals like that. And what do they do? Well, at this junction, if this is serotonin instead of dopamine, when it comes down here, it, re it takes back the serotonin and leaves it in the space longer. But there's a problem with that. Your brain is a very dynamic organ. So what does your brain do? It actually either upregulates more receptors or downregulates them. So what happens? When the chemical is withdrawn, what happens? You now have like no effect. Your body swings in the whole opposite direction. So at the end, you wind up far more anxious, possibly, than you were in the beginning. And the other thing that happens with things like nicotine and dopamine release, nicotine is a potent dopamine releaser, is that now in order for you to receive pleasure, it takes a lot more. In fact, one of the things that happens when you smoke cigarettes and you get all that nicotine in is that you actually get to a point where you need the nicotine not to get high. You talk to smokers, the buzzing of the buzz that the nicotine gives you is gone in the first few months for most people. They smoke cigarettes to feel normal. They, they don't feel normal without saying, that's why they gotta run outside and have one. If they don't have it, they get into a state of depression and dysphoria. They really feel bad. And, and that's why the reason why when you deal with ministry with these people, you can't be like, well, it's, you know, it's willpower, just quit. It's not that simple. Their, their brain anatomy on a, a cellular level has been transformed. And they really feel horrible. So you gotta give them all these tools to help them to come off of it. A lot of different behavioral modification tools that you can use to help them to come off it, but it's never going to be easy. Once you start this, it's, it never goes away. And I've met guys that went to a Christmas party. I used to teach the smoking class at the VA hospital in Loma Linda um, when, I, when I was a preventive medicine resident. And these guys said that they would go to a Christmas party and have a, you know, they'd have a drink and say, you know, it used to be so pleasurable to have a cigarette. And they hadn't smoked in eight years or 10 years or 12 years sometimes. And they'd have one cigarette, one, thinking I can have one. And guess what happens? They go right back to a pack a day or two pack. Within a day or two, they're right back where they left off 10 years earlier and back in class at the VA. It's a powerful, powerful thing and the brain kind of has a memory connected to it as well. Um, so we have to be careful. And this is why guarding the mind is so important. Once you set up these bad pathways or alter them, it's very difficult to undo it. 
un it is difficult to get the brain to heal, to go all the way back to normal. And in some ways, it never really does. Even Ellen White talks about that in the quote I'll show you this afternoon. It, you, it's very difficult to efface the lines that are drawn, she says, once this is done. It, it's very difficult to undo. And so that's why never smoking and never drinking is the, is the real thing. Somebody called me from Maryland this week and said, uh, one of my good friends, he said, their church is having these arguments over wine. There are a lot of people in church that are saying, we should be able to drink wine. Why can't we drink wine? It's in the Bible. This, we have this argument at Loma Linda. There's nurses that are, I have nurse friends that are Adventists, that say they're Adventists, that are wine connoisseurs. And they say, well, a little bit of wine is good for you. That, that is a lie, first of all, because you just drink the grape juice and it has the same effect. So you don't really actually have to ferment it if you want anything good from it. Uh, but this, this, you know, this thing now that wine is so good, well, the problem is every time you drink it, you start these little tiny alterations in the brain uh, anatomy. In a neuroanatomy at a cellular level, each time it's a little bit of a change. And in order to get the same effect the next time, guess what you have to do? You have to drink a little bit more and a little bit more. And you, you may be able to drink one glass every night for 20 years. But then somebody dies, something happens, and what dopamine pathway is really good for is stunting your emotional response. So if you're going through something that's painful, what do you do? You light up a cigarette. Well, guess what that does? It arrests your emotional development. You don't actually develop normally because you never actually deal with problems. Think about it. On a neurochemical basis, you actually never dealt with a problem your whole life if you've been smoking since you were 10 or 12 or 13 or 15. Every time you got into an argument, you smoked a cigarette, you actually blocked your brain from having to fully deal with the problem. And so you have what we call arrested development. And that's why people who do drugs are often the age, when they come off of it, they're actually in emotional age, they're the age they were when they started. They never really matured. And I know this because I was on the plane with Bobby Brown, the one married to Whitney Houston. I was on the plane with him just a week or two ago, he comes on, I'm like, that's Bobby Brown. And he looks horrible. I mean, he's not an old guy. He looks like he's six, he looks horrible. I mean, I'll give an age, but he looks way older than he should. Just looks really miserable. And to be honest with you, he was such a horrible passenger. Him and his, the guy with him on the plane, the stewardesses threatened to land the plane and put him off. And I had to preach at Oakwood, and I'm catching a red eye, and I'm like, if this, I'm going to beat him up myself. <laughs> I'm going I'm to I'm throw him out the window. But, I mean, once they said that, he, like, calmed all the way down and sat down. And, but, I mean, a grown man, and to see his childish, immature antics when there were no cameras rolling, it wasn't a show, it was night, Every, most of us trying to sleep, and to see the things that he said, it was horrible. That's what drugs do. And of course, when you're as rich as Bobby Brown went in Houston and you get addicted to cocaine, it's the worst thing that ever happened. There's no bottom to hit. There's enough money for them to just always do cocaine. And it has arrested his development. I saw a hand here. I have a question. Um, some people, they deal with like, the emotional pain with exercise. And exercise produces the neurochemicals too. Does that do the same thing in stunting growth or no? You see, when the body naturally releases, the problem with these chemicals is that these are, it's like a tidal wave compared to turning on a, a garden hose. When you naturally drink water, it's just a trickle of dopamine. Um, even in like, you know, in, in like, you know, in, in sexual activity, you know, it, it's, it's, it's still nowhere near the amount of dopamine being released as if you take a line of cocaine or take a cigarette. I mean, this is like a, a flood of dopamine comes through. And after a while, 
you know, even water, food, none of that matters. And all of the studies on rats prove that. The rats that get cocaine, you can give them food, water, you can give them the opposite sex, they don't care. They just keep hitting the lever to get the cocaine or the nicotine. And nicotine is as addictive as cocaine, basically. So, you know what I mean? It, it's not the same thing. So what you want to, but the reason we have to do that is because it allows the body to try and reshape the, the, the neuroanatomy. So you have to remove that dopamine stimulus and give them some other dopamine stimulus, like exercise is a mild one, but, uh, and actually, we, with exercise, you're really hoping that they get more of an endorphin-induced and sweat things out, because you gotta get all the chemical out of them, too. I mean, a lot of that stuff is, is in them. I mean, marijuana actually, THC is fat-soluble, so marijuana actually goes and hides in their fat cells and can stay in there for weeks. So, you know, we're now in Southern California, we've got an explosion of marijuana use legally. There are 650 marijuana um, dispensaries in Los Angeles County alone. Compared to Oakland, Alameda County only has two. So all of a sudden, Southern California has become pot central. People are flying in from all over the country, finding these doctors that are giving these bogus marijuana prescriptions, and they can go have, and they'll give it for anything. I have a neck pain. I can't sleep. And, and marijuana is, an, is a psychotic agent. It actually produces psychosis. So here are people coming and saying, I have schizophrenia, bipolar, and they're giving them prescriptions. And they're having people actually completely flip and wig out on marijuana. So, I mean, it's a, we live in a very bizarre time when people are saying, well, marijuana's good for you. It's medicine. Smoke it. Well, I mean, I'll let you in a secret. Smoking, nothing's good for you. You can smoke, you know, sugar, you know, oak leaves. Smoking anything's not good. Smoke's not good for you. That's the irony. And, and marijuana has like 100 times more carcinogens than, than a cigarette. So you're going to have this rash of cancers in the future related to all of this, this massive upswing in um, marijuana intake, the way that the, our society's going. The governor's even saying, legalize it, tax it, and make up the budget shortfall. What? Are we Holland? <laughs> I mean, let's fix the spending and <laughs> actually do some work in Sacramento rather than legalize it. Should we just legalize cocaine too? I mean, we could solve all our problems with taxing all the crackheads in Los Angeles. <laughs> and worse, crystal meth is even bigger than all of them. It's bigger than marijuana or, um, or, or, or cocaine. So, I mean, where do you stop once you start this? I mean, that's the kind of society we live in. And, I mean, as Christians, we really have to be prepared, especially when we deal, deal with witnessing and going out and talking to people. We have to understand you're dealing with people whose brains sometimes have been scrambled. And just like the demoniacs would run at Jesus, we're going to have those same kind of experiences because of the introduction of these foreign, harsh chemicals in large quantities into people's systems in these last days. And it's Satan's plan to actually do that in the last days and make things more difficult um, for us as Christians to deal with. Let me see. Oh, no, this one has this thing on it. Let me click it in. Let me read a couple of texts and we'll, be, we'll break. Uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And we have to cast down imaginations. Um, what we think about. And really, our imaginations in this day and age are actually given us through the media. 
and bringing every thought into captivity. Peter says it like this, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And so we, I mean, part of the reason why we really have to be in, in, in constant communion with our Lord and really, you know, fighting the fight of faith and really in prayer and Bible study and trying to draw as close as we can to the Lord is because the devil has some serious weapons in his arsenal and they can sneak under the radar and get you. And that's a big part of what happens in our churches is people think, okay, I can handle this thing. I can handle wine. I can handle a little marijuana in our churches. <laughs> I can handle, you know, getting, you know, watching these certain TV shows that may not really be appropriate or too much TV in general. I can handle the secular music. It's not going to affect me, pastor. And don't realize that all along the devil is using this to move you away. Move you away, move you away, and bring you into enmity with the things of God. So that when the time comes and the crisis comes and he springs his trap, you just say, you know what, forget it. I'll walk away. And so many of our young people, so many of our older people, the time comes and you think that they would grit down and say, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to stay with him through this crisis. They throw up their hands and they walk away. That didn't happen in a moment. It happened because all along, like Joe Cruz, creeping compromise, all along they were being fed these alternate options, these alternate ideas, these alternate scenarios, these, you know, messing with their brain, depleting their defenses. So that when the devil springs the trap, they're weak at their weakest point, and they just walk away. And we as Christians, we really, you know, we really have to be stronger than that. We have to really, you know, ask God to help us to be humble. That's the first thing. We have to be humble enough to really say to God, we need his help all the time. Take heed when you think you stand. Take heed lest you fall. So it's important that we, we are constantly and always drawing closer and closer to God. Um, we're going to have a, a word of prayer. And then what we'll do for the rest of the time, because I think we finish it like, in like 45 minutes, is just answer questions. So if you have any questions, we can just have like a bit of a, more of a discussion. And then we'll meet back together at... Yeah, yeah, because it's about 45 minutes. We start... Okay, Okay, and then what's the second, what, what time does the afternoon start? The afternoon starts at 3.30? Okay, so at 3... 3.30? I thought it was 1.30. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, 1.30. No? But this afternoon, it's in your packet. <laughs> does anybody know? Yeah, it starts at 3.30. 3.30, okay, she was right. So 3.30... Yeah, three is what I'm talking about. Three. But we're gonna spend. We'll, we'll spend like the next half hour just, just answering questions and talking about some of the stuff that you saw. So that, um, because we went straight through this first one, I didn't give a break. So we'll do that that way. Let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. We're closing, and if you have questions and you're in the back or anything, you can move closer and we can we can talk a little bit. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, Lord, to learn and to study. Lord, we have truly been wonderfully and fearfully made. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the brilliance and, and creativity you put into making man. But Father God, at the same time, if we do not stay in, clo in close communion with you, and if we do not keep your precepts, Lord, and follow your statutes and all of the instruction you've given us in your word and through, your, and through the spirit of prophecy, Lord, we could really go sideways fast. So for Lord, we're asking that you would help us to remain on the straight and the narrow path that our mind and our thoughts would always be given to you. 
Lord, remove from us any habit, any addiction, anything that would pull us from you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have questions, we can um, take, some, take some questions. Yeah, if you can stretch for a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and answer questions. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.